Hi, diddly ho, Preparinos. This is Nat, the preparedness guy on Preparedness Works. Preparedness Works is part of the Readiness Lab, the place for podcasts, webinars, and training in the field of emergency and disaster services. Today, I have on Patrick Hardy, who is a certified emergency manager and master business continuity professional. He has over 25 years of experience in emergency response and emergency management, and he is an author of a new book called Design Any Disaster, which is released March 7th. Hi, Patrick. Thanks very much for having me today, Nat. I'm excited. So I have skimmed this this book. I've read the first few chapters and skimmed the rest because I ran out of time. <laughs> but I'm, I am actually loving it. I think it's really awesome. Um, can you tell us about what, what inspired you to, to write the book? Well, one of the things that I was doing was I, you know, I work with small businesses and families all the time. And one of the things I was doing was I said, I have all these wonderful empowerment tools, these things that are allowing people to just completely avoid disasters. And I thought this is something I wanted to share on a much wider audience. And so I thought the book was a wonderful ven- a wonderful tool for me to be able to do that and share that message uh, much more broadly. That's awesome. Uh, so what, what kind of uh, what kind of experience do you have? And what uh, is what are the things that you've done to help people? Well, I started my career um, in a nonprofit. Uh, I was working. This was right after Hurricane Katrina. And then I wrote a letter to the governor of Louisiana. And I said, listen, I want to be an emergency manager. I think this would be really cool. And they said, absolutely. Come on down. So I ended up living and working in Baton Rouge, Louisiana for some years. Um, And then I went overseas. I went to Great Britain. I studied emergency management there. And then I came back and I opened a business. And I started working with Fortune 500 companies. I was a Fortune 500 consultant. And what ended up happening was I ended up working with a lot of small businesses that were associated with those big companies. So little hotels and restaurants and bars and nursing homes. And one of the things I really noticed was that big scale disaster plans, big scale trainings and drills never really empowered or gave people tools, the mainline employees, the people who will be doing the real parts of a disaster response, they didn't give them any tools to actually do this. And so what I said was, I'm going to develop disaster plans. I'm going to develop trainings and drills that really empower them, that really give them the management ability to be able to operate on their own, assuming managers aren't there. Because when disaster plans say things like, you know, the vice president of the company will do this and do this and do this, and everyone else just stands there. <laughs> that, that doesn't help anybody, yeah. you know. And with families, it's even more acute. So when I was working with families, I started developing it where I said I could even empower kids to run a disaster response if the parents aren't there. Once I did that, I realized I had something where I said this is a message that could be useful for anybody. Yeah, isn't that the coolest thing when you start believing kids can do amazing things in emergencies and they do it? Yeah, I write about it jokingly in in the book, actually. I actually say, you know what, I'll take a group of first graders over the Army Corps of Engineers any day of the week. Because (laughs) little kids, when you empower them and say to them, listen, this is something I want you to do. You're responsible for it, not the teacher, not anyone else. They are amazing. They are. They will do exactly as you ask them to do. And one of the things that I actually talk about in the book too is I, I actually tell the story about when I was um, I was working on a plan at, at a school. I wrote their disaster plan. And I went and trained a lot of the kids. And in the classrooms, I, I picked a captain and a vice captain. 
And then I, I picked a couple of other people and said, if those two are not available, then it's you four. So there's literally like four backups here, right? And so anyway, uh, they actually had a fire evacuation and there was a substitute teacher in one of the classrooms. The substitute teacher didn't know what to do, totally freaked out and there was a fire. And so she grabs um, her coat and just runs out and oh, forgot no. the disaster plan and forgot the emergency backpack. So they get out onto the field and lo and behold, she's about to run back inside when she realizes she doesn't have it. And one of the kids brought the backpack. Another kid brought the disaster oh, plan awesome. because I told them that's your plan. <laughs> that's yours. And they were able to um, actually uh, be, able, be able to use it even without anyone else, quote, leading them. All right. That's awesome. So I have a I have a um, question for you. What is a disaster? What is a disaster? A disaster is only something you allow to happen to you. A disaster really isn't a disaster. It's not like what you hear about in the news. It's not a hurricane. It's not an earthquake. It's not a flood. It's not a fire. It's only the impacts you allow to happen to your life. So one of the things I talk about in the book is the fact that, for example, in California, we get earthquakes every day. We get little earthquakes, right? 1.0 earthquakes. They don't, nobody ever feels them. Right. But then when you have like an 8.0 earthquake, everybody says, oh, well, then, you know, that's something that's going to impact my life. And so I say it's that's not even a disaster either unless you allow it to affect your life. When you have you made your life resilient, whether it's physically, mentally, socially, professionally, financially, all of a sudden it's not a disaster anymore. It's just a challenge. It's something that you can easily overcome. And in fact, one of the things I argue in the book, and I feel very strongly about this, is that you can actually be stronger as a result, more successful, because you can now, you don't have to worry about, about actually losing anything in the, the disaster. You actually can um, improve yourself in the end. Right. So it, it's, not the, it's not the recovery to the same stage. It's the reverse. Is that how you put it? That's what I do. I actually tell people, and I used to say that to people all the time, I want you to reverse the disaster. And because what do you mean to reverse the disaster? I say, well, because after a disaster, everyone always says, well, I'm barely able to recover. I just got just back to where I was before. And I say, I'm not even remotely interested in that. I don't care about that at all. All I care about is how can I make you stronger afterwards? Are things going going to be damaged in a disaster? Absolutely. No doubt. No question about it. If you have an 8.0 earthquake, things are going to be damaged. But the question I have for you is, is how much are you going to allow that to affect your life? So are you going to create backups? Do you have the necessary things for that, that your life is resilient enough that uh, is, and I can get it. And what I argue in the book is I can get you so resilient that you don't even have to experience a disaster at all. Wow. So can't I just call 911? You can. In fact, one of the things I tell people is I say 911 is extremely important. But one of the things I say is that when the fire department shows up, when the ambulances show up, when law enforcement shows up, it's not their disaster. It's not their incident. It's not their emergency. It's yours. It's still yours. They're, think of them as like members of your team. And you're the one that runs the team. But they're on your team. And they're going to they need to perform certain actions because it's like, you know, it's like the quarterback, you know, on a a professional football team. They're not the wide receiver. They can't be the tight end. They can't be the linebackers. They can't be the defense. I mean, there's things you just you can't do, but they're the ones that sort of lead you. And they're the ones that make sure everything is in place the way it's supposed to be, because eventually one of the things I tell people all the time, um, eventually they will leave. 
And eventually, once they go away, people say, now what? Right. You know, all these yeah, and, things happened. In emergency management and emergency response, we use the uh, incident command system a lot. And mm-hmm. um, there, in every incident, there's an incident commander. If it's a very small incident or a very large incident, there's always one person who essentially has ultimate th- authority over it. And when you take ownership of of an incident, you are the incident commander. You're the one in charge and you own it. Um, I've used an example before when I'm, I'm teaching this uh, of a of a flat tire in a car. Um, you you get a flat tire and you pull over. Suddenly you are, you're the incident commander and you're also responsible for your own safety. You're responsible for the operations, actually changing the tire. Um, you're responsible for, for planning, figuring out what happened, uh, what's happening now and what's going to happen. You're responsible for logistics. Yep. Yep. You've got to go to your own (laughs) trunk and get it. And, uh, your finance and admin, you've got to pay for it all. And, um, you can call roadside assistance and they can come and do operations for you. If, you know, if, if, if you don't know how to do that, but it's still your incident and you are still ultimately responsible for it and you're overseeing that the, the, uh, highway patrol might pull over maybe they're doing some safety for you. But ultimately, everything is your responsibility, no matter how many resources you have or how much help you have. You've always got to own own that incident. I love it. That is absolutely right. In fact, um, one of the things that um, I did very early on in my career was when I was working with small businesses, I realized that the instant command system, which is what you're just talking about, or our ICS, it's a great tool when you're working with large agencies and you're working with governments. But I said with small businesses, it's a little bit different, right? Because you have a small number of people. And so one of the things I did was I adapted ICS, but I always kept two roles. But other than these two roles, I changed the names of the various um, the various jobs, various section chiefs and things, because I always thought I want to make it so that small businesses have something dynamic and easy to use. Mm-hmm. The two titles I kept is the safety officer and the incident commander. And I did that for a reason, because when you are interfacing with first response agencies or you're interfacing with FEMA or you're interfacing with whatever emergency management agencies, they're going to realize that those two roles are extremely important, right? Because safety is somebody who is ensuring the safety of the personnel who are responding, right? And so to interface with that person, they're going to have in-depth information that would be really important. And then the incident commander, of course, as you said. And, And that's what I tell families too. You're the incident commander and you're the one in charge. And if you, the the minute you surrender that to someone else is the day you start becoming dependent, the day you turn into a bystander, and that's when you're going to experience a disaster. So let's talk about being a bystander. Um, you know, we've got all these systems. We've got people, you know, once you basically abdicate your responsibility, you're giving it up, you become a bystander. What does that mean? It means that you have become dependent on someone else. So you've essentially said, you've made one critical assumption. If I do nothing, someone else will handle it for me. That's what happens. Once people start to say that, then you start to see a whole magnitude of issues because they start saying, I know that the government will provide me with this. The government or the the fire department will do this for me. I don't have to do anything in the disaster. I'm not responsible for it. It's up to them. And one of the things I tell people is that's when there starts to be a problem because then I start asking questions like, how do you know they're going to be able to provide all that stuff? How do you know there aren't, do you have enough backups to ensure that those things are going to work? 
each one of those are really important. The obvious example with most families is insurance companies. I literally have had conversations with entire communities of people who said, well, if we have a disaster, that's okay. My insurance company will handle everything. And I say, well, you understand your policy has exceptions, right? There, there's things that are exempted, <laughs> the things that are not included. Um, the uh, the obvious example, and you, and you probably understand this very well, is that in hurricane season, everybody assumes that wind damage will 100% be covered no matter what, and it isn't, right? There are special endorsements. There's different things that come in place. But when someone says, I'll let the insurance company handle it, the insurance company is going to let you down. That's how you become a bystander. You're essentially standing by and letting them handle it. To, to go back to your example, it's as if you 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 know you you uh, you know you have the tire flat and you call nine one say listen I need help and they come by and say can you change the tire for me I I I, I don't want to do it you know what I mean and they just go well that's not something I do well I thought you guys always did that I actually had this funny call when I uh, when I was an EMS professional uh, we got a call once um, and they said. Uh, uh, we need you to come by and pick me up. And they and you know this was this lady. She had COPD, and and she it was she was someone we routinely transported for her, um, uh, for her treatments and things. And so she calls us and says, um, um, you know, can you take me to treatment? So we did. We took her treatment. And then on the way home, she said, Hey, listen, can you drive me to McDonald's um, <laughs> so I can get a meal? And I said, Well, well, what do you mean? She goes, Well, that's what you guys do. You pick me up and you take me places. I said, Well, that's true. But not to McDonald's. Yeah, not, <laughs> not every place. <laughs> not every place, but the, but some 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 places. And that's somebody who, again, it's just sort of a funny example of sometimes how people, you know, they try to let one other person handle everything for them when they can't. So when we make sure that we have the the things, the right supplies, um, does that just mean you get as much of everything as possible? No. Uh, one of the things I, I instruct people, um, I give them and I, I write, write about this in the book. Um, I say, you know, there's a really simple test I want you to apply with every piece of equipment, every supply you purchase and every technology you try to implement, which is you buy it, you try it, but don't rely on it. And I say that not because I don't want people to rely on things. Of course not. <laughs> but the purpose yeah. is, is that there are gradations where you have to realize that you have to have backups. What ends up happening too often is that people will buy a certain amount of food or they'll buy something and say, okay, or they'll have a wonderful app on their phone or they'll have something and they'll, they'll say, well, as long as I use the app, I don't have to do any other planning. Well, that means what you've done is all you've done is you've become a bystander. You bystander yourself and you bystander yourself to an app or you bystander yourself to the food, or you bystander yourself to the red backpack that everybody buys at Home Depot or Walmart or whatever. And they stick in the corner and they go, I got that. But instead, what I tell people is, is I say, you should have multiple backups in place that give you a sense of true resilience so you're not totally reliant on one single thing. Because as soon as you do that, you are going to make yourself a victim in a disaster because you've now left yourself vulnerable because if something were to happen to that food supply, you now don't have anything. But when you have multiple backups, you have some, you have a different, you have a, uh, a better chance of being mu mu much more resilient in whatever, whatever you're facing. In the, in the book, you shared an example about the red backpacks, <laughs> which I, I, I have the same exact feelings as you. Yeah, you, you could buy a cheap bag from Walmart or Amazon and who knows what's in it, right? Um, but you, were, you gave an example of a, a couple who had, uh, they planned on going in their RV and they, they asked you to um, 
take a look at their emergency um, kit and you open it up and dumped it out and he couldn't eat it because he had celiacs and and it was disgusting and <laughs> they didn't like it so she wasn't going <laughs> to eat it and it's like it's the things that somebody is putting in there because it saves them money but it's it's got a day's worth of calories in it right and um, but it's just these these things that do they actually meet your needs and right. I, I always look at preparedness like I don't store food I don't store items that it's like well I would eat that if it if I it was if I had to survive it's like no I want to store things that I enjoy <laughs> eating all of the food that I like and and then find a, a shelf stable version of it I think that's absolutely right and in fact uh, not only that the reason why I tell that story so much is because it happens constantly where people will buy food that they've never had before. And I'm sure that, that you that you've talked to 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 other guests and, and others about this before, which is, you know, people just buy the backpack and then they just stick it in a corner mm-hmm. and they go, Well, I know it's got enough in there because the label says so. You know, and it has everything I need. And and I do that all the time. I mean I literally I'll take backpacks and I just pour them out on tables. And I say, okay guys, we're gonna use every single thing here. And sometimes people will go, what's this thing? What's that thing? You know, and the, and we will we'll literally use it and Every once in a while, lo and behold, just like in real life, stuff doesn't work. <laughs> I can't tell you the number of emergency radios that supposedly are perfect. Do they get damaged in transport? Of course. Or do they just stop working? Of course. It's a piece of technology. I mean, you know, it's the old thing. It's the old saw about the more complicated it is, the more likely it is it isn't going to work. Mm-hmm. And that's what I say about technology, too, is that when people say, well, I've got my iPhone. My iPhone will do everything for me. And I said, well, I can think of a dozen disasters, right? I mean, without even picking up Google, without, without thinking about, I mean, I can think of just like 12 disasters where literally your phone's not going to work. Right. <laughs> yeah, it right? happens all the time. It happens all the time. And you say something really interesting because um, you're right. Not everyone has to buy tons of food. If you live in a rural area where you're away from modern infrastructure, maybe you do need that much food. Maybe so. But that doesn't mean Everyone needs all that. That's why I always tell people, evaluate based on what you need. And and I, I love what you say about making sure you eat the right things and, and things you actually want to eat. Because during a disaster, food is a tremendous morale booster. Mm-hmm. And if you eat food that you don't like and you have stuff you don't like, oh boy, it is going to be a long, hard day. You're going to make a miserable situation worse. <laughs> Unequivocally true. Yeah, Absolutely. So you talked about uh, equipment, supplies, and technology. Uh, buy it, try it, but don't rely on it. Um, it the, this is a common theme throughout your book, the EST. Um, so equipment, supplies, and technology. When you are you, – you recommend just go ahead, open it up, try it out, um, unwrap it, get it out of the plastic, and, and practice with it. What benefit does, does that really have? And um, even like you know, what if it's an expensive item? Well, no matter how expensive an item is, if it if you haven't actually tried it, you have no idea if it's going to work. I mean, one of the things that uh, I used to I used to do when I was in when I was uh, when I used to teach EMS students and I used to teach you know kids when they're wearing the ambulance, I'd say, okay, listen, you see all this stuff on here, you have no idea if any of this stuff works. Do you need to check the backboards? Yep. Do you need to pull out the oxygen tanks? Yep. Do you have to make sure all stuff works before shift? Yes, because when you have a patient in the back who's in cardiac distress. 
and you suddenly realize that, oh yeah, I don't have the masks that I need, or I don't have, you know, all that's not the time to be finding that out. You've now turned a little crisis into a massive disaster where you now have to hurry fast to the hospital. You have to do whatever you have to do. And that escalates the situation. Um, But what I say to people instead is I say, um, when you have the equipment out and you've tested it, you're, you're sure that it works. And, you know, because if you don't, test it out in advance, there is no way to know if it's actually going to work. So yes, I absolutely do advise people to do that because as I was telling you a moment ago, you know, we all buy things from Amazon or we all buy things online and we come and they's like, wow, we paid a lot of money for whatever this object is, not related to disasters, this is some object. And it comes and you know what? It doesn't work for whatever reason. You know, uh, you know, you bought a thumb drive and you thought it was going to work well and then you get it and lo and behold, it didn't work. You know, I was recently, I, I purchased a gaming mouse and I brought it home and I, you know, it's a nice expensive mouse and came up, didn't work. You know, <laughs> and that's not, you know what I mean? So those are the kinds of things you need to be thinking about now. So you're right. It is, it, sometimes these items can be expensive, but it's something you got to think about. How do you integrate uh, the the equipment supplies and technology you have into um, family exercises or drills? Like if, if you're doing a, a, like a fire drill or, or disaster drill, and how would you, how would you go about doing a disaster drill and then implementing those, those items? What I do is I take is I, I hand those items to to people who would be tremendously enthusiastic about using them. <laughs> and that's always it's always kids. And I do yeah. that not because I don't think the adults can't use them. The adults can use them. But but I'm realistic about it. I've, I've worked with thousands of families. You know, it's you know, the parents are like, let's go do this thing. But it's always the kids because the kids are a really open minded B they will touch they're very tactile they won't let anything go and see they will make they will remember everything that's in there and so and it reminds the parents too that's sort of the fourth benefit too is that the parents will be looking and going oh and they'll pretend like they knew i had that i've done a couple of times where they didn't know but they but they were like oh oh yeah that's how that works clearly you know and the kids were fooling with it and that is what happens uh when i was trained when i used to train emts I, I tell i tell the story in the book too uh, when I first trained EMTs, uh, I used to use the book. Um, and so I would train them on, you know, uh, mass casualty incidents. That was what I did. Terrorism, mass casualty and hazardous materials. And so when I talked to them about mass casualty incidents, I say, okay, guys, you have to worry about this. You got to think about this. When you have a lot of victims, you got to be doing these things. And it just went totally over their head. But soon as I said, okay, you know what? Forget I get the book. We're going to take the dummies out and I'm going to show you what it's like. And I actually took out, uh, I actually talk about this too. I, I took out about 80 teddy bears. I used to do this. And I used to put a little index card around their neck. And there's like a, there's like a something called start triage. It's, it's a system we use in EMS to determine prioritization of patients. And I used to put them all in a room. And then I would have the EMS students going through and trying to triage every single teddy bear within a certain period of time. And if they didn't make it, I made them start over because it's that kinesthetic, that literally the touching of the object and actually going through it, that really helps. So regardless of what kind of drills people do, even if families, and I'm and I'm not naive. I mean, I know most families are not going to, let's go right. out and do a whole disaster. Just take the stuff out and tell your kids, let's just open it up here on the floor while we're watching something on TV or something like that. Or let's, let's go and check it out. Or when you're going camping or when you're out, just try it, take it out, give them something to do they will amaze you and you also will be much more familiar with what's contained within. That's awesome. 
in your book, you talk about it's kind of the the core of it. It's your three, C3 method. method. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a different look. I mean, uh, coming from emergency management uh, background myself, uh, you have reframed the way we, we look at disasters, right? So can you talk about this uh, C3 method? Yeah, what I, what I believe is that if we're going to get ourselves out of this bystander syndrome, right, where we're going to get ourselves away from being on the sidelines of a disaster response, as I say, I, I want you to go through this, this three-part system. And I don't care what it is. I don't care if you're facing a hurricane, hazardous material, anything you're facing, I want you to use this particular method. So the first step is, is taking command. And what I mean by taking command is literally being a leader, like leading the disaster response. And you and I talked about that a minute ago, which was you take leadership responsibility, it's yours. And I derive it from the old incident command system where I get rid of the word incident. I just say this, you're, you're the commander, you're the one in charge. So, and the one thing I say this to employees all the time, when I work with small businesses, I, I will go and find an employee who's brand new at the company. And I'll say, uh, well, I need somebody to be the instant commander, somebody to be in, in charge. And of course, the managers all put, you know, put their arms up and they say, okay, yeah, we'll do it. And I say, no, 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 no. I want, I want the person who's brand new to, to, to actually come up to the front. So they'll come up to the front and I'll say, okay, you're in charge. And they'll say, why me? And I'll be like, because you're the one that discovered this event, whatever it is. You discovered the fire. You discovered these, whatever. And you're in charge because it can happen in real life. So it's taking responsibility, leading, and breaking down um, the old mindset of if I do nothing, someone else will do it for me, to if I do nothing, no one else will do anything either. If I do nothing, no one else will do anything either. When you get into that spot, you think, okay, now I'm in charge. Communicating is that second plank, which is really more of assembling a team, right? It's you, you're assembling a, a team of people together to deal with a particular emergency, right? Or some incident that that has occurred, whatever it is. And remembering that you are in charge of that team, but you have a team around you. You have people who are directly working with you and people who are more indirect. So, so people you're directly working with are, you know, uh, your, you know, other, your, your, say your family members or business people who you work with at the office. And then indirect people are folks like FEMA, or the weather service, where that's sort of a unidirectional kind of communication, right? The weather service sends you things you're not necessarily communicating with them. They just say, yeah, expect three more inches of rain tomorrow or whatever, you know what I mean? So then the last one is carrying out. And the reason why I talk about carry out is I say, you are responsible for executing all these activities. You have to do it. Not the fire department, not anyone else. They're on your team. But you are in charge of making sure that your family is safe. You are responsible for your own property, et cetera, et cetera. And once people realize that, and I say, no matter what happens on scene, you are ultimately responsible, their mindset changes like that. Because all of a sudden, it's not, I'm just handing it off. They're now active participants because they realize that it's really up to them. So that's the C3 method. And I find that snaps people instantly out of this bystander effect into into a place of action versus one of um impassivity that's awesome with the um you know talking about the red backpacks bystander effect everything you know, fear is often a a good motivator but it's temporary and it's not long lasting and that's when somebody sees something in the news or happens to them or a family member or a friend and they go and buy the red backpack and then they're like i'm good um but really implementing this allows them to say, well, if I'm responsible for this, I better make sure it's good. Uh, we also 
you mentioned the taking the brand new employee and bringing them up, them up to the front. If they're the one who discovers it, how do we make sure that they can take specific action without having to run it up the flagpole? Well, when you're working in a corporate environment, I'm going to speak strictly within a corporate environment here. Um, your disaster plans have to enable people. If your disaster plans essentially say the equivalent of uh, the manager will handle it, or you have to have the general manager here, or the vice president has to be here, or the owner has to be here, or the CEO has been there, you instantly turn all your employees into bystanders. Instantly. Because now they are paralyzed. Because if the plan literally says the vice president will do this and this, or the manager will do this and this, they're going to say, I can't do anything because this is policy. I have to wait for them to handle it. You have now institutionalized, you have calcified this. If I do nothing, someone else will do it for me. You know how I know that? Because it says it right in the plan. But when I, when I develop plans, I literally, and I, I can tell you this, when my early in my career, people were looking at me like I was crazy. So I'd say, whoever picks up the plan is the incident commander. And I, I had like owners of businesses going, what are you, are you crazy? I say, you don't live here. You're not at the office every day. What if you're injured? What if you're on vacation? What if you're out? How, who's going to handle this on your behalf? It doesn't mean they have to run the whole disaster, but right. I mean, at least at a minimum, you are giving them the tools to evacuate people, shelter people in place, lock the place down, do crisis communication, do all those basic mechanisms of emergency management and business continuity. Why don't you do that instead of wasting instead of wasting time having them wait for you? Because if you wait for that time, you have a greater opportunity of losing money and opportunities. So in writing this book, was there a a big lesson learned for you? Um, I mean, obviously you're implementing <laughs> and and you're writing down all the lessons you've learned over uh, decades of experience. Uh, but in the process of formulating this, for for others, was there anything for you that was kind of a revelation or uh, changed your perspective on things? Yeah, you know what is the big thing that really changed for me was when I was looking, and I hope you'll uh, finish the book uh, with chapter fifteen. That's the very last chapter. It's a really good, it's a really good um, story I'd heard about and I'd studied, which was about a tribe that is in Southeast Asia. And they live in the shadow of a massive volcano. And this is not a dormant volcano. This is a volcano that erupts every five to eight years or so. And every time it erupts, it destroys part of the village every single time. And um, and so the government um, of Indonesia came to them and said, hey, uh, you know, let's relocate you. Let's find a way to evacuate you off the island. Let's let's get you totally out of here. And the tribesmen said no. They didn't want any help. And they asked when they said, why? I mean, you live in a shadow of a massive volcano. And they said, because we live in harmony with that volcano. And we recognize the volcano is going to erupt every five to eight years. We actually like it that the volcano does that. That's the relationship we have with them. And they were perplexed. And they, they, they said, well, whenever it erupts, it actually, the magma that comes out, and when it, once that cools, that is great fertilizer for our crops. Huh. When they destroy these old huts, that's great. It helps us to realize we need to build stronger ones. 
but they always keep it. And there's, and there's actually a, a, an issue regarding the gods as well, which I'm not, not going to get into too much. But the point is, is that they have this relationship with the volcano. And the one thing I learned and the one insight I want to make sure that people really get out of the book is live in harmony with disasters. Don't fight them. Don't try to get around them. Disasters are going to occur. But the question is, how much are you going to allow the disaster to affect your life? That's really the message I want to get. And when people live in harmony, if you'll read in the very front, I always talk about the the dedication I put in there. I said, uh, you know, to those who live in the age of disasters, you got this. And they do. Everybody has it. They just, if they just change their mindset just a little bit, they could truly live in harmony with the disasters around them, whether it's a volcano, an earthquake or anything in between. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. Yeah, I definitely will finish it. I'm hooked already. I just need, I just need more time. Um, it, yeah, I definitely, uh, from what I've read so far and, and skimmed, this is, um, it's a book, uh, so far I can in, endorse wholeheartedly, uh, and really, really puts into perspective how individuals can take charge, can be responsible for themselves and the situation and empower other people. I've had similar experiences in my life of taking action because somebody had to do something or empowering those around me, giving them tasks, specific jobs to do. And I've talked about it on the, on the podcast here too. Uh, but when you identify somebody who is capable and they just need some direction, suddenly they're, they're part of your team and helping you with the overall incident. That's absolutely right. That's a perfect example of it, is that once you empower people, you would be amazed at what people can accomplish. Uh, one of the things I'll mention uh, to you is um, is that in the fall, uh, we're actually going to be doing something really cool. We're going to be working with – I'm going to be working with a school, and we're going to run a massive disaster drill um, there. And all the teachers and all the administrators are going to be victims, and the students will entirely be in charge of the entire disaster response. So that's going to be really exciting. So hopefully, I can that is exciting. Can that. Yes. Oh, I yeah. Keep me updated. That would be incredible to see. I I love. Um, I teach my own kids um, some of these skills, and they're excited about it. And I just love the idea of of empowering children uh, because you know they again they're they're capable, they're excited, and they get on board. You can teach them. <laughs> skills from putting a uh, putting on a tourniquet to leading an evacuation. Absolutely, no doubt. All right, what uh, what message do you have for the people other than buy the book March seventh? One of the things I, I tell people is I say, you know, um, for me, this is uh, the beginning of a lot of messages I really want to promote to people that in the end, in the ultimate diff, in the final solution, you don't ever have to experience a disaster in your life. It's the only time you experience a disaster is the amount that you choose to feel it. Um, but happens around us are things that are natural or unnatural or something that's belligerent. So we get something horrible that happens to us. It's, but it doesn't have to be something that destroys you. It's something that can actually make you stronger, more successful and more resilient. Because as we deal with the various factors around us, the storms, the, you know, the earthquakes, the, the different, you know, things that happen geopolitically, everything that happens around us if we live in harmony with those disasters and say, I'm not going to let the disaster destroy me. I'm actually going to allow the disaster to strengthen me and make me a better person. That is how you truly will get through the age of disasters. 
Absolutely. Yeah, bad things are going to happen and we can prevent some, we can mitigate most. Mm -hmm. They're going to happen whether we want them to or not. But you're right, being able to own it, take the steps that that we can do, put it in our you know, circle of contro control or um, however it goes. But um, really just, just realizing that our attitude, our actions uh, can really change how it impacts us. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things where people, when people feel like they don't have any control over it, it, it just becomes, it just, people start surrendering. They start thinking that, you know, I'm sure you've heard, I'm sure you've heard many stories of this people feeling like they're overwhelmed. They don't know what to do. And so they just kind of give up and say, I'm just going to let things that, you know, someone also handle it for me. And then that's when there becomes a real problem. So uh, once people assert their own control, then um, they can choose how much the disaster will truly affect them. That's awesome. So I would love to, to tell more of the stories from the book, but I am not going to because um, it's too much of a spoiler. Everyone needs to go and read it themselves. Um, but I love your examples of bystanders um, or not being a bystander, especially um, your particular Disneyland situation. Um, love that one. And um, and then then going forward and, and teaching people, empowering them, um, helping them recognize where their equipment supplies technology um where they have some shortcomings and can improve and then just changing the the mindset and helping people take action so your book design any disaster by patrick hardy is available for pre-order pre-order now um with the release date of march 7th and um is this is this part of a series is this kind of the 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 one thing I mean, obviously it's not a novel so you don't have a <laughs> <laughs> I, I i see this as something that is is changing the the mindset of of people um so of course it's a standalone work but uh, what else i guess what else do you have planned not necessarily books well, I got, well i got planned oh well um on june 1st i'm i'm launching my my brand entirely with my brand new website it's going to be tremendously exciting in fact i'll have a link to this very podcast um on there it's going to be something where um i'm going to showcase all the different things i do because i'm a keynote speaker um obviously i have this book and it's not the last book in fact well, i already have ideas for two future books um because this is a kind of concept that can be applied at work, at school, at home, anywhere. And I, I have an idea for a second book that actually came from, from, from a business colleague. And I was talking to them and they were asking me the identical question you asked me at the very beginning. What is a disaster? So I aim to answer that question much more fully in a future book. So I, I'd be interested to talk with you about that. Um, but the other thing is, is that um, the... What I am planning to do in the fall in going to that school, we're going to do it on, we're going to have drones, we're going to have social media, I'll have law enforcement, I'm going to have community emergency response teams, which are, for those of you not familiar with that, those are uh, civilian teams that are essentially either volunteers that are generally organized by their fire departments or by emergency management agencies and so supervised by them, and they deploy. Uh, on disasters um, for, for various for various reasons. They provide uh, certain baseline skills. And... Um, we're planning to do that much more broadly. I, I, in fact, for promotion of the book, we're going to try and do that at schools around the country. So we're, we're organizing that for the fall national preparedness month. I'm sure you know, that September. National preparedness month, September. And then, you know, it's we got October. Holiday. 
<laughs> yeah, it's one of those great extended holidays for us to emergency managers. And um, it's an opportunity for us to travel around. We'll get an opportunity to see lots of schools and I'm going to run drills just like this one. Very unique. Nothing like people have ever seen before because I want people to realize disasters don't have to be doom and gloom. Yeah. They don't have to be blood and guts. In fact, if you do that, people shut down. I've spoken to audiences around the world on this and people just shut down. And I, but instead, whenever I, I, I speak with people, I get them laughing. I want them up on their feet. I want them to say, look, this is doable. You can really impact your community and impact yourself. It's not rocket science. It's just a matter of utilizing skills, skills that that I'm sure that you, that you yourself teach uh, the people who listen to this podcast and otherwise is putting people in a position to say, I can absolutely handle that. Because once you're able to do that, then people, they're able to handle it on their own. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So the uh, most important question, what's your, uh, what's your favorite disaster movie? <laughs> it's going to seem very unusual. It's not going to seem like one that you would naturally think of, but it is very much a disaster movie. The, my favorite disaster movie is Jurassic Park. And I say that because it has so many interesting elements to it. Because I think if, if people look, and now that book, uh, I'm sorry, that movie came out in 1993. Um, and the book came out in the early 80s, as I recall. Um, and I read that book as a kid. And one of the things that I realized is that if you really think about it, Jurassic Park is one big disaster movie because what you have is you got rampaging um, animals, <laughs> right? Yeah. Or eating people, right? Yeah, that's, <laughs> so, that's, a, that's a simple way to put it, but that's true. Yeah. Giant animals. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So what they're trying to do is two things. They evacuate, right? So, so, so Dr. Alan Grant takes the two children, Alex and Tim. Uh, around the around the park and if you read the book that's what they're talking about they're traveling around the park trying to get back to the visitor center so it's like an evacuation once they get to the visitor center what do they have to do they shelter in place until they realize the velociraptors can open the doors so now you've got to lock yourself down so now you have evacuation you got shelter in place you got lockdown and all at the same time the park is trying to get back online and get those uh, get, get the electrical fences back up. If that's not a business continuity topic, I don't know what is. Right. And, and the same, it yeah. exposed the cybersecurity uh, because this was all because of, of one person's um, exactly. hack <laughs> vulnerable. Yeah, and industrial uh, attempted industrial theft. And then in the end, they have to do a complete site abandonment because they have to get picked up by a helicopter to get off this island before they get eaten by. And, and what's really cool about it is that um, this is particularly true in the book as well. Michael Crichton makes it very clear. There is these interesting constellation of people. You have the game warden from Africa. You have the, uh, you know, the paleontologist from Montana. You know, you have the two kids, you know, you, you, you know, you have the mathematician, you have the, you know, you, 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 you know, you have the geneticist, you have the, uh, the guy from Cambridge who's from Harvard, who's the uh, computer guy. And they all, Either they're either antagonists or they are the people who work together to try to solve this whole thing. And they have to work together as a team. That is the best instant command team I think I've ever seen in fiction or otherwise. So that is my favorite disaster movie. That's really good. (laughs) That's a great one. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. Last word. Other than, again, other than by the book. 
Sure. Uh, my last word is is that on June first, I have a I have my brand new website coming out, and I will and I hope that I can come back on your podcast. Now I had a lot of fun today. I want to thank you all very much for for hearing me today. I think you're going to really like the book an awful lot. But I want to come back because I want this to not just be just a book that I've put out or just a speech I've given or just a podcast. I want this really to be a revolution in disaster preparedness because we don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live in a place where we have to always be in, in have anxiety and panic and depression. We can Amen. live just like the villagers in Southeast Asia. If we live in harmony with disasters, then we can truly overcome them and make them a great success in our life. And I hope that, that this conversation is just the peak of the iceberg or just the tip of the iceberg of what, I, of what I'm able to do um, with all, all the listeners here and with the other people who pick up the book as well. So thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it very much and um, I'll look forward to coming back on sometime. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It's Patrick Hardy, the author of Design Any Disaster release date March 7th. So everybody get that uh, wherever you buy books. It's available on Amazon. I'll put a link in the description as well. Um, I'm going to finish it. And so far, it is fantastic. I um, have really, really enjoyed it. And it's been very informative. So everybody check that out. Uh, thank you for joining us today. And remember, preparedness works.